Imagine this. You or maybe a loved one, you experience what's called a mental health crisis. It could be depression, thoughts of self-harm, drug abuse. Now, if that happens, do you know who to call for help? Is it a hotline? The police? It can be really confusing to know who to reach out to, especially during an emergency. Enter 988. That's the number for a new crisis hotline launched in July. Now, later in the hour, a reporter will tell us about the hotline's success so far and the personal stories that he's been hearing. First, we are joined by Rachel Bogwat, the Director of Policy at National Alliance on Mental Illness, or NAMI Chicago. Welcome to the show, Rachel. Hi, thank you for having me. So as I mentioned, the new National Suicide Prevention Hotline, 988, it made its debut over the summer, but there was already a crisis number before that. So what was the need for the change? Absolutely. So, you know, for for decades and and really forever, people in mental health emergencies have had to rely on the general emergency response system in that time of need. And so that means calling 911, calling uh, and and having dispatch or deployment of police, fire, ambulance, etc. And a lot of the reason for that has been that there have been crisis lines in the past. Um, 988 was built on the infrastructure of the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. Mm -hmm. And there are other hotlines, too. But they weren't and aren't centralized, and that's not an easy number to remember (laughs) in a time of crisis. So in that moment, how do we make it easy to know where's that one-stop shop I can call during a mental health emergency just as easily as I could call 911? Yeah, and I want to zoom out just a little bit here and do maybe some some crisis 101 with you, right? Because when we say mental health emergency crisis, like I did in the intro here, a lot of us may not actually know what to picture. So what constitutes a crisis? That's a really good question. Um, you know, a mental health crisis or emergency, it can mean a lot of things and it can look a lot of ways. I think because of the name of 988, people are immediately thinking about suicide and suicidal crisis. And that's definitely one, um, you know, one possibility. But when you think about, um, you know, mental health crisis, that could also have a substance use component. We could be talking about overdose. We could be talking about a panic attack. We could be talking about something that might look like a criminal act, but it might be related to a mental health emergency. And I think an important thing to know is that there's a lot of levels of sort of severity or or, or intensity of what a crisis can look like. I I think there's a misconception that a suicide line of like how – when somebody calls a suicide line, does that mean how seriously are they thinking about or considering kind of that act? And, and a lot of people are looking for emotional support and might be at different levels of crisis. So uh, there's not a, an easy answer except to say that there are a lot of different kinds of mental health emergencies, which is why, and we'll talk more about this, I'm sure we have to have a lot of different options for yeah. response and support. What are the biggest issues that you see happening nationally related to crisis response? You know, for for really as long as mental health has been a thing, has been known, right? It's been very stigmatized and othered. And I think that there hasn't been an investment in... um there's not been an investment in understanding what mental health emergencies are, what kind of support people in mental health emergencies might need, and maybe hasn't been a lot of emphasis placed on that being important. But I think in the last five, a few years, we've seen that change. We've seen increased interest in, you know, in, in doing more to support mental health overall, but also mental health crises and emergencies. And I think the overall sort of shift we're seeing is this idea that, um, a mental health emergency deserves a mental health response, 
not not that we should be kind of putting folks in those crises into the general emergency system. So I think mm-hmm. that's a shift, you know, that we're seeing nationwide, but it, it's challenging. It turns out it's not as easy as just snapping your fingers and saying that. The, the logistics behind that are very difficult. Yeah. Well, later in the show, we are going to talk more about the uh, the dynamic between police response and mental health needs, right? But what do you think, Rachel, that the problem is with having a general response to crisis events like the police? Sure. Well, you know, the the general emergency system, it has a very broad range of emergencies in mind. And it turns out that people who are experiencing mental health crises a lot of times the way that emergency responders show up, it, it might not be the right response. Just to give you an example, um, you know, somebody who who is very kind of stressed out in the middle of an emergency, whether that's a panic attack or maybe they're having, you know, experiencing a delusion or a hallucination, and an ambulance shows up with a siren screaming and lights flashing, that can be very, very stressful, right? That could, that could exacerbate, that could make this worse, mm-hmm. whatever might be going on. And so that's not tailored to the needs of the person in that situation, not taking into consideration what their mental state might be. So that can cause a lot of issues. Certainly, you know, the fact that police are by nature law enforcement and are by nature, you know, sort of there to to connect to the criminal court system, right? So that leads to criminalization. Mm-hmm. Um, that can be a serious issue. Um, and then I think I'll, I'd also highlight, you know, the emergency system is set up to deal with and react to people in the point of emergency. And, and really that's it. And then move them on to the next step. And mental health emergencies and crises, they're complicated and they're not short. You know, somebody who's having a mental health emergency today also needs connection to longer-term support, follow-up care, uh, and, and they need to kind of move forward to become more stable. So it, it's that system, that crisis system, it's not um, the emergency system that exists. It's not yeah. set up to really support that. So so is a fix for people to just stop calling 911 during a mental health emergency? Is that it? Well, we've got to have an alternative, right, because people are... are sometimes in dangerous and volatile situations and they need someone to call. And so I think it's not about necessarily, uh, you know, saying let's just stop using the system we have. we got to build something to replace it or to work alongside it. And I think, and this is where the, the devil's in the details, is we have to build something as robust as the emergency system so it can really be a viable alternative. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about Illinois. We've got six crisis call centers, right? Mm-hmm. Where are they? So they're scattered around the state. Um, a few are in the Chicago land area. Um, one of them, uh, C4, is what, what we call them. They are located in Chicago. Um, but the, the most capacity for call taking in the state is actually in Bloomington. That's where our state backup center is. The other call centers are really quite small. Is Illinois falling behind? The statistics will show you that for quite some time, Illinois had actually been the absolute lowest ranked state in the nation in terms of our ability to answer our own calls for the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. And so that's, of course, what was the basis of 988. So that means that prior to the 988 rollout, it was some 80% of calls originating in Illinois were being answered in other states. So we didn't have a lot of call capacity. We're actually making a lot of improvement. We've seen some drastic improvements. Uh, I'm really impressed by the state, um, you know, advancement in the last couple of months. Yeah. Well, why is it a problem? Help us understand. Why is it a problem that so many calls were being taken outside of the state, as you said? 
Yeah, it's a problem for a couple of reasons. One of them is a little bit of a logistical problem, is that the way that the, the 988 and the Lifeline are set up is that if you call, if I call from my desk here in my office, it's going to ring the nearest call center and then the next nearest, and, and it's sort of an array of backup centers until they find someone able to take my call. And that can lead to really extensive wait times, which, you know, I don't think I need to explain why that's a problem mm-hmm. if somebody's in a mental health crisis. And so we were seeing longer than average wait times in Illinois, which also led to higher than average rates of people hanging up before anyone ever picked up the phone to support them. That's really scary, right, for people in our state. So that's one issue. The second issue for that is that, um, you know, I mentioned that we have to not just think about mental health, people in mental health crisis at the moment of emergency. We have to think about longer-term support. And in that case, it's very important to think local because if I'm here in Chicago and I need a support maybe connection to a housing navigator or I need connection to longer-term mental health support, it's going to be important that there's someone able to talk to me who's a little bit more local, who understands Illinois or Chicago systems. You know, if I'm talking to someone in Wyoming, it's going to be a little bit tough. Yeah, that makes sense. What other problems do you see, Rachel, in, in Illinois' crisis response system? You know, there's been a lot of progress in Illinois and across the nation on building out new kinds of mental health crisis response programs. The state has invested a lot of money into new teams. They call them 590 teams, which um, respond, are able to respond to um, people in mental health crisis without a police or, you know, um, ambulance response. So there's been a huge investment there. The city has been piloting new programs where there are certain types of calls that come into 911 that can get non-police or non, um, you know, EMS response. There's a lot of new and interesting programs, 988, of course, as we've talked about. Mm-hmm. Um, but these are really hard programs to implement. And, and what we're seeing is we've founded a lot of new programs very quickly. I think it's become politically interesting in the last few years to pursue, and certainly it's very, very necessary. But not all these systems are working together very well Mm -hmm. um, right now. And just as an example, um, there's not... In the state's new mobile mental health mobile crisis team program, um, there's 68 organizations across the state that have those teams, and currently they have 68 phone numbers. So it's complicated. The state is working on this. They are 100% working on this. But, you know, I always go back to if I'm a person in a mental health crisis or I'm sitting with my, my family member who is, who do I call? What should I expect to happen? How do, how do I navigate the system? And then if I sit where I'm sitting, how do we as mental health advocates do the work on the back end to make the system work so that figuring it all out isn't the burden of the person on on the ground. This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. And if you're just tuning in, we're talking with Rachel Bogwat, NAMI's Director of Policy, about the new National Suicide Prevention Hotline, 988. And we're digging deeper into the issues around crisis prevention and response. So it's still early days, Rachel, but the the new hotline, as we mentioned, it's been around for a few months now. What else can you tell us about how the introduction of this hotline impacts the way that mental health call centers work in Illinois? Sure. Well, I'll say first that I think that the introduction of 988, especially as a national law, that plus the different changes we're seeing um, in mental health crisis and, mm-hmm. and in perspectives of, about mental health in Illinois and across the country, I really think that we are in a once-in-a-generation moment, an opportunity to transform mental health crisis care and really to transform the whole 
mental health system. I, I think this is a very important moment that we have to take advantage of. But we also have to do it right. If we miss this window of opportunity, you know, I think that that's really problematic. We always say that, you know, people, it's so hard for people to call for help. And if they do, if they call for and, and reach out for mental health support and they don't have a good experience, if we don't roll out these programs right the first time, yeah. um, you know, that there's a real risk about the long-term success. Why, why is now the time? You talk well, about this moment. Why, why now? So many reasons. You know, in the last few years, um, I've been at NAMI Chicago almost five years, and so I feel like I've been living through this transformation. You know, in the last few years, we've seen really this increase in mental health awareness in our society. And then if you think about when, so 988 was designated, the the idea was created by a federal law. And that federal law was passed in July 2020. You want to think about what was happening in July 2020, right? That was a couple, a few months into the pandemic, which of course raised our our mental health awareness and, and raised how many mental health crises our society was experiencing. But also it was, you know, amidst that sort of upswell of the movement for black lives. And I think understanding that connection, we know that people who are black and brown, people who are from marginalized communities are more likely to have to rely on crisis and emergency services to access mental health care. It shouldn't be like that, but that is currently how it is. And Mm -hmm. so changing these systems has a disproportionate impact on, on many of those communities. So these things have all intersected. It's been this like confluence, and we've seen this politically in a number of places and societally. So we think this is the moment, right? And and we're seeing, so we see these these programs rolling out like 988 as amazing first steps. But mm-hmm. then we as advocates have to push that we keep fighting because there's a lot more to do. Yeah. Well, we've talked about statewide numbers here, Rachel, but what are we seeing in Chicago? Are we seeing the same problems that are happening nationally and across Illinois? Yeah, I think, you know, Chicago is such a complex place. I know that's an understatement. Um, but I think a couple things that stand out to me here is that, you know, Cook County, if you think even just a little bigger than Chicago, Cook County has such a large population share of the state of Illinois. And, and as such, the majority, such a large proportion of the 988 calls and the crisis calls coming from the state of Illinois are coming from Cook County. It, it just follows, right, by population. But we only have one very small call center to take 988 calls in um, in Chicago. There's one in Chicago, and there's none in suburban Cook County. And so that leaves mm-hmm. us in a situation where majority of our calls in our city and county are being picked up in Bloomington. Now, certainly, that is way better than being picked up in a different state or in a national center, and, and we support our partners in Bloomington, you know, to, to the end here. But there's additional work, I think, to be done to make sure that our folks locally kind of have that locally specific care, knowing that, like, that the system and issues in Chicago and Cook County are very complicated and and often Mm -hmm. very different than the rest of the state. So that's one, I think, topic. The other is there's a real kind of equity and access issue here. You know, I mentioned a second ago about the fact that these crisis system issues disproportionately affect um, low-income communities, black and brown communities. We're seeing in the way that some of these programs are rolling out, we're seeing folks from those communities having less access to these programs, including like the the mental health mobile crisis response teams, Mm. just because of how some of these programs have rolled out. And I think we have to put a really big red flag on that right? This has to be prioritized in these rollouts. And I think we're really seeing this in Chicago. Post the launch of this new hotline, what's top of mind? A couple of things. We are 
paying a lot of attention to the work of something called SESA. This is a, a council. There, there was a law passed last year in Illinois that created some state and regional councils that are trying to figure out some of these coordination issues. How does do 911 and 988 transfer calls to each other? When, why, et cetera? How do we deploy different types of response teams in a more effective way, in a more centralized way? There's a lot of technical background work going on. We're really, really interested to see what comes out of that. So that's the first thing. The second thing I'll say is that there's a piece of this system that isn't being talked about as much as it should be. We're, we're hearing, we're having a lot of conversations around the need for there to, to be someone to call that's mental health specific in that time of crisis. Mm-hmm. We're definitely having conversations about the need for there to be someone to respond in a time of mental health crisis who is not just a traditional responder. But the third piece of this is um, is a place to go during a mental health emergency, somewhere that folks could walk in same day and Get some support. Get someone to talk to. That Maybe get medical stabilization. Mm-hmm. It'd be incredibly important because if we have all these new front doors to the system, like a new phone number, but at the end of the day, we can only send people to emergency rooms, right? Like that's there's so many barriers still to people being able to, you know, stabilize and thrive and and live long term. So there, this piece, it's been a little bit less politically loud. I would say mm-hmm. this, it's called crisis receiving and stabilization. That's the the technical term, and this Very is something we're really trying to promote. Yeah, I would love to hear more about that. We'll we'll have to get you back. That's Rachel. Thank you so much, Rachel Bagwat, the director of policy at National Alliance on Mental Illness, or NAMI, Chicago. Thank you, Rachel. Thank you. Back now with more Reset. I'm your host, Sasha Ann Simons. Let's continue our conversation about the new crisis hotline, 988. Along with the rollout of the new hotline, more money has also been invested into improving Illinois' crisis call centers. Even with all these new changes, though, is it enough? We're joined in studio by Mindsight reporter Josh McGee, who's been covering both the transition to the new hotline and the police response to mental health needs for WBEZ. You can read his work over on WBEZ.org. Welcome to Reset, Josh. Hey, thanks for having me. And on the line with us is Kelsey DePiro, Director of Rapid Response and Community Programs at Community Counseling Centers of Chicago, or C4. Hi, Kelsey. Hi, Sasha. I'll start with you. We've been talking about the issues around the response uh, during a mental health crisis. Can you just tell us more about what actually happens when someone calls a crisis center? Just walk us through that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so when someone calls a crisis center, um, they're going to be connected with <clears throat> someone who's been trained. Um, on our staff, those are all paid individuals. We don't have volunteers. Um, but somebody who's been extensively trained to um, respond to a crisis event, um, both from kind of a clinical lens um, but many of our staff also have lived experience, um, and so they've actually walked through the mental health system, um, oftentimes in Chicago. Um, and so they're going to um, engage a caller, um, you know, primarily um, initially around risk, right? So those really important questions to ask about, are you thinking about ending your life? Are you thinking about hurting yourself? Are you thinking about hurting someone else? Um, and, and we're always looking to kind of establish, like, where are we going to start this conversation? Um, and then that conversation is going to, you know, run through a risk assessment, um, but it's going to be done so in a pretty, like, conversational way, mm-hmm. um, looking to validate the caller and the situation that they're in. Um, and then we're really uh, trying to join with the caller as to how we can best support them in 
um, mediating their crisis events mm-hmm. um, and getting them connected. And so there's a part of the call where it's, you know, what do you think would be most helpful for you today and how can I support you in that happening? Um, at that point, um, we are going to, uh, if possible, make some warm connection to resources. Um, but we also have the capacity to follow up with callers um, the day after, two days after, a week after, um, and, and make sure that we're really kind of bridging that gap and ensuring that we're stabilizing them after a crisis. Can anyone call this hotline, Kelsey, to, to, if they see someone on the street having a mental health emergency? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, a person can call for themselves. They can call for a loved one. They okay. can call for a stranger. Um, in those situations, you know, we're really looking to, like, if a, if a stranger called in your example for somebody on the street that was having a crisis, um, obviously it would be wonderful if we could work together as a team um, to connect with that person in crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, but if that's not possible, like, sometimes it's not. You know, I've, I've driven past, you know, people in crisis, and I know, like, something needs to happen, but it's either not safe or, or whatever is happening that doesn't make it feasible um, right. to attend to that, in, you know, on my own. Um, or even with the support of a clinician, um, we are going to get contact information, at which point that would be one of those situations where we would staff and see if there was an appropriate um, uh, 590 response or that mobile crisis response. Let's bring you in here, Josh. How successful has this new hotline been so far? Um, So far, it's been very successful. I mean, it's basically an an influx. It went from 81% of the calls being answered out of state uh, to eighty more than eighty five more than eighty percent being answered in state. So in the oh, small right. amount of time that it's had, it has been successful in at least that part, that yeah. portion of it. So you recently published an article, Josh, about the um, the need for an alternative to us calling nine one one for these these uh, mental health emergencies. You get into the reasons why nine one one just should not be the go to, right? So I want to dig into that a little bit more. What has um, police response or 911 response looked like when people call for these mental health services? Yeah, I, the, the first thing is there's a lot of these kind of calls. Uh, we looked at data and saw 171,000 mental health calls basically be, being flagged as mental health calls at the OEMC level, the dispatch level. Um, and basically that's 193 per day. So that seems like a lot of them. Um, but also that the police response has come just basically that when these um, incidents happen, um, over the last two and a half years, we've had about 150 incidents where tactical response reports are filled out, which basically, which basically means that police use some kind of force. Mm-hmm. I heard the word tactical, and I knew it was going <laughs> in the wrong direction. Yeah, so that was one of the things where I was like, okay, this is illuminating. We're seeing some kind of these these violent responses. Um, and my, my rationale was, let me think of, of why this is happening. Let's figure this out. Um, and basically, with your data team, we were able to dig a lot deeper into these incidents and found that um, about 93, uh, two out of three out of these incidents are occurring with black residents of Chicago. Two um, out of three? Yes, two wow. out of three. Um, that's when the police response is, there's a use of force kind of violence. Um, but it wasn't really, I, I was expecting to see, you know, pulled weapons and, and shootings like that, but that really wasn't it. There was probably two incidents that actually included a gun. Uh, but there was all these different ones where it was kind of a, a violent takedown mm. or um, a taser was used. Uh, so the police response, uh, it's been better um, since the DOJ report in 2016, which kind of illuminated that, hey, there's a there's not this great police report, re- police response in Chicago to these. And um, police are kind of coming into the system or coming into the incident without knowing that this is a mental health issue. Um, and then 
something bad happens, a, yeah. a, a, a shooting or a violent takedown, a, a breaking of arms, something like that. Wow. Uh, so it's been kind of it's been improved, but there's also still these incidents that we see uh, that kind of that push you to be like, okay, well, maybe they shouldn't be responding. And um, yeah, maybe some of this a is pretty response. extreme. Yeah. Is, uh, what else have you learned, Josh, uh, so far about uh, crisis intervention training or, or CIT? For, yeah. for police. So we they've had this training uh, basically probably since about 2005-ish, you know, and they came out with kind of a pilot program to try it out in two districts. Um, and it's really kind of improved. I mean, it's expanded. Um, and basically they have about 3,000 trained officers. Um, the data shows that about two-thirds of their training has kind of expired. But they have 3,000 officers uh, ready uh, who are trained in CIT. Okay. Um, and one of the things, uh, they, they come from a Memphis model. Uh, that It was based out of University of Memphis, kind of came up with this kind of idea of police of crisis intervention teams. Um, and basically, um, one of the things that, that Chicago was doing different than other places is basically they weren't getting that many volunteers for this, which is one of the big things for CIT training is mm-hmm. that the officers should want to be here. They should be want to learn. Um, but CPD kind of, they made it um, necessary or essential. Mandatory. Uh, mandatory yeah. there. That's the word. Uh, for their um, for their sergeants, for their higher level people so that they had this training. But that also means that the other officers aren't necessarily um, going, the, the younger officers yeah. and the officers that are responding on the street aren't necessarily going to have this training. Um, it's about 40 hours of training, a week's worth of um Things and basically they go through some of these incidents, uh, substance abuse, how to respond to that, um, with co-occurring disorders, child and adolescent disorders. Um, oh wow! Okay, so they cover all the, the the bases then. Right, and they do some uh, role playing with um, if people are hearing voices or maybe hallucinating. So they do have these kind of pockets classes that go into some of these different kind of mental health responses, which was what I wasn't sure about. I wasn't sure if they had something for substance abuse or right. if they had something for. Um, hallucinating. But they do. They have it. They go through all of these kind of scenarios and situations. Um, so they do get this kind of training and should know how to respond to that. Yeah. Kelsey, is is your organization C4, are you involved in any CIT programs for the police? Yeah, we um, actually work pretty closely with CPD um, and they often invite us in to talk about our perspective and our programming Um and we try to participate with them on a monthly basis um, to, you know, just just add a perspective that comes from outside the department, right? Um, clinical response therapists and people with lived experience are approaching these situations very differently um, from a different mindset than, than yeah. officers are. And so um, they've been really welcoming and um, they've been really happy to have us involved, I think. Um, and we've been very happy to be involved. Earlier in the show, Kelsey, we talked about the uh, crisis call centers that we have here in this state. We currently have six in Illinois, but this wasn't always the case, right? Yeah, so prior to 988, there, um, and uh, I I can't kind of identify how many there were previously. Um, It was previous to my time at C4 um, and my oversight of the program. Um, C4 has been involved with the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline um, you know, for the last several years, seven. Um, and so we've been engaged in that, um, you know, on a business hour basis um, for quite a while. Okay. And so we were really excited to get involved with 988 and to take that program and expand it through the 401 expansion grant. Um, but that's been the point of kind of the, that 401 expansion grant is to expand, whether that's expanding call centers or expanding teams. 
Yeah. Josh, uh, more funding has been invested into improving call centers in Illinois. Can you just tell us more about the uh, the 401 Suicide Prevention Call Center Enhancement Grant? Yeah, um, this is kind of the, the big grant. Uh, this is the $9.8 million, uh, that's being invested in Bloomington, basically. Um, and what they're trying to do is they're supposed to be hiring about 100 staffers um, to, to create this primary call center uh, that's basically going to cover 67 counties. Um, before that, only I think 51 counties in the in the state were had some kind of coverage for this. Mm-hmm. Um, so this it, it's it's huge. Um, I wasn't able to speak to Path. I reached out to them several times oh, to okay. kind of get some some yeah, understanding. Did, like, did you get a sense of like where exactly this money is going in Illinois? Well, yeah, it's most of this. The 9.8 is going directly to Path. Um, oh, so okay. it's supposed to go to the staffing uh, and making sure that people are people are there. People are available 24 seven to to answer these calls. Um, so that's that is the investment. It's in this yeah. giant center, or what's, I don't. I've never seen the center. It's really small, <laughs> right. but it's a it's it's supposed to be a huge place uh, for to be the primary call center. Yeah. Well, we we're just about out of time, Josh. But I want to sum this up. We've got this new hotline. More money being invested in improving crisis response in this state. Is that enough? That's that's the question um, I still have. Um, but you know, when I'm speaking, the experts I've spoke to, you know, it's this is really just the first step. Um, they're hoping they're thinking more of a five year plan to kind of get this out. Um, so they're hoping it's enough, but I think that one of the, the major falls we always see is that there's eventually it's going to happen. And when I see something like the South Side not having coverage, it tells me, well, when is it going to happen? If it mm-hmm. didn't happen in the first investment, when does it happen? And, you know, that's going to be what I'm looking at and following. <laughs> yeah, and we'll be calling you back. Okay, good. <laughs> Josh McGee is a reporter for Mindsight. You can read a story about the 988 hotline and what more needs to be done to better serve those calling with mental health crises over at WBEZ.org. Thank you, Josh. Thank you for having me. We've also been talking with Kelsey DePiro, Director of Rapid Response and Community Programs at Community Counseling Centers of Chicago, or C4. Thank you, Kelsey. Thank you, Sasha.